Hello, this is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. It's called Alpha Bunga Bunga, and now it's party time. But this is a new kind of party. The 19th and 20th centuries saw the mass political party become the hegemonic form of civic political organization, interfacing between citizens and the state. But we all know what happened to it. It became a really crappy, hollowed-out shell. It became more interested in marketing than on participation, more focused on the politics of the corridor than on representing its base's interests. Dominated by pollsters and consultants, it's little surprise that membership of these organizations has dropped precipitously over the past decades. But something new has emerged, something that uses digital technologies to increase participation, bringing its members closer to power. Or so they claim. This is the platform or digital party. Our guest today, Paolo Gerbaldo, has written a book, The Digital Party, that explores this proposition. Paolo is a political sociologist and activist and lecturer at King's College London. He's also the director of the Center for Digital Culture there. What you'll hear now is our interview with Paolo, which runs about 55 minutes, and then we round out at the end with a brief discussion amongst ourselves, drawing out the key themes. Quick reminder before we get started, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash bungacast. Please chip in some money if you feel we're worth it. It'll go towards expanding our output. And remember to rate and review us on iTunes, Facebook, or wherever you can give us those tasty gold stars. Cheers. All right, welcome everyone to Alpha Bunga Bunga. We are Ben Fogel in Sao Paulo, George Hoare in the UK, and Phil Cunliffe in the UK, and myself in Sao Paulo. I'm Alex Hochuli, and we're very happy to be joined by Paolo Gerbaldo, um, who you've heard about already in the introduction. Uh, Paolo, thanks very much for joining us. Hi, everybody. So to get started, although the book is a general overview of a new organizational form, the Digital Party, which Paolo discusses in length at his book in his book, you draw examples from all over, but you keep coming back to Five Star Movement in Italy. And this mm-hmm. seems to be, to me, for good reason. It's probably the most ideal, typical digital party to date. Maybe you can agree or disagree with that. Um, but I'd actually like to get started talking about Italy, mainly because it's been a little while since we caught up with what's going on there. Uh, and long-time listeners will know that kind of one of the starting points of this podcast or main thesis is that Italy has in some way been a sort of negative innovator for a long time now. A lot of uh, global political trends actually were started off in Italy. Um, For those wanting to know more about this sort of discussion, you should check out episode 30, uh, in which we previewed the elections, the recent Italian elections with David Broder, uh, but also discussed in much longer terms the the recent Italian history. So, Paolo, to get started, I I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about Senso Comune that you're involved in. Uh, A past guest of ours, Thomas Fazzi, is also involved. And I I reckon that the four of us probably have uh, kind of some shared dispositions with with Senso Comune. So can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I mean, Senso Comune is a movement that has been developing in recent years in Italy. I mean, it started very much as a think tank uh, with different people. I mean, Thomas I, Samuele, Tommaso. Uh, Olympia, m- many other people who were basically concerned about the fact that the left in Italy uh, was perhaps the most uh, failing left in in, mm-hmm. in the entire kind of West, perhaps, uh, in the sense that we have gone through a number of very heavy defeats in recent years, 
and uh, and there's seemingly no way out of that. And that is for a series of very uh, important reasons that are, are present in Italy, perhaps in the most extreme way, but are more general uh, issues that affect the left globally. Uh, they have to do with mm, the third way mm, transformation of the left, the way mm-hmm. in which the left has uh, tried to adopt economic middle class strategy, the way in which it has adopted neoliberal policies. And the group started very much as a kind of intellectual media activism group uh, working on that. But then we have since then grown into basically a campaigning movement. We work on different campaigns, campaigns for the nationalization of public services. We are now going to launch a campaign for uh, on jobs, on uh, the right of people to, to, to jobs and public jobs in particular. Uh, which I, we think they are all very important issues for the left. Yet they are issues that the left in Italy, especially, a, has abandoned. And in so doing, it has opened up the terrain for challengers, for other actors, uh, including the Five Star Movement, whose success, to a great extent, uh, stems precisely from this uh, void that has opened up in the political space, uh, with no actor uh, claiming the role of uh, egalitarianism and, and, and emancipation and, and improvement of conditions for, for ordinary people. That's really interesting. Um, if I could just uh, chase it up, this is Phil. Are there any, have you got any international connections, Senso Comune, or do you think that you potentially offer a model for other movements or political, political actors in other countries in Europe? I mean, we have connections with, um, say, the new left populist wave, right? What is sometimes described as the new left populism. I mean, our model from the start has been uh, Podemos in Spain. Uh, We uh, are informed by Jean-Luc Mélenchon's uh, France Insoumise in France. We look with sympathy at Corbyn's Labour Party in Britain and at various uh, youth movements and youth media activist groups such as Novara Media in Britain. I mean, in a way, we, we we think that this left populism is an attempt to, to renew the, the left project, right? And we think that Italy is perhaps the country where this necessity is more um, uh, radically seen, precisely because of the, um, the depth and the extent of the betrayal of the left in, in Italy, the way in which it has become um, the most committed actor to the to the neoliberal project to the point that the left in Italy was more neoliberal than Berlusconi was mm. even, and it seems the most wedded to the European project as well. Perhaps the most Europeanized left, completely, which is part of the equation, right? Which is part of the equation in a sense that the European uh, Union uh, has been one of the main levers of neoliberalism in Europe, and 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 the left has been completely wedded in Italy to this project. And to this day, it continues to be. Uh, even the so-called radical left, much of it uh, is very uneasy when it comes to even just criticizing the European Union, uh, where criticism of the EU is considered a stunt amount to chauvinism or nationalism, or at least whatever, a, no- a nostalgia going back to a nation state that, that can never be redeemed, as it were. Mm. And it's interesting because uh, precisely because of the sort of parties that are in power in Italy now, it seems that some of the right populists have been able to usurp some of the energy where the left should be. So I wanted to ask, what has Five Star been like in government, seeing as you mm-hmm. discuss it so uh, so much in your book? 
they seem to have somewhat been observed, uh, usurped by uh, by Lega. I mean, Five Star did got thirty two percent of the vote, and Lega seventeen percent. And I think in polling, this has basically flipped around recently. Yes, very much, very much. I mean, uh, I think you sum up well the, the situation in the sense that, I mean, I'd say that there was much hope in this government, and still there is a lot of hope. One has to, to admit, for a start. Precisely because of the failure of the, of the previous government of uh, Partido Democratico and Matteo Renzi's government, which has continued very much with the third way policies, and it was a sort of Matteo Renzi was a sort of Tony Blair, Italian Tony Blair, twenty years after, right after expiry date, say, and and because of that, at least there was some some hope, some credit to this government that they had some promises of having been more. Uh, about Canadian policies to some extent, being more critical of the EU, uh, making some, providing some public services, some transfers to poor people, the famous uh, reddito di cittadinanza or citizen income, which the Five Star Movement has proposed. Uh, but I say, I mean, now is basically seven months or eight months since the government was formed. The government was formed back in, in, in March last year and, and we have seen that very much what this government this government promised to be a government of change and it can already be said that it is a government of betrayal in the sense that they promise they promise them a, a bolder line vis-a-vis uh, -vis the EU and they have very rapidly uh, surrendered to the injunction coming from Brussels especially in regards to deficit spending they were initially promising to uh, uh, have 2.4 uh, deficit, which is required in a country with such a high level of unemployment as Italy. Now they backtracked and now they uh, contented themselves with 2.04, <laughs> which is quite quite ludicrous. And uh, and and they are making some promises of, of social spending, which I think I mean should be assessed with some nuance shouldn't be ridiculed as much of the left uh, often does with, with, with everything that Five Star Movement does. For example, the citizen income is basically a transfer uh, of around, I mean, we don't know how how much exactly it will be, but perhaps around kind of 500 euros, and it will depend on the number of family members, it will depend on the level of income, whether somebody is completely unemployed or, uh, but still, I mean, in Italy, basically, we don't have a job seekers allowance, right? Uh, we don't have a universal um, unemployment uh, benefit, as you would have in Britain. In Italy, unemployment benefits are uh, highly conditional. This means that there are millions of people, literally, which have no uh, safety net. Uh, mm. I don't know, perhaps only Greece is in a similar situation in, in, in Europe. Hi, pa Paolo, it's, it's yeah. Georgia. I think this is really in interesting, and it, it, I guess it raises a question about um, maybe the the, con the Italian context um, and how Five Star Movement operate within that. Because we heard back in, in June of last year that Italy was to get the first uh, Minister for Direct Democracy, and this is a Five Star yeah. Movement proposal. Um, they've also advocated various referenda and Davide Casaleggio, a Five Star Movement activist, suggested in future Parliament might become superfluous. So I guess what's the, what's the significance of the minister for direct democracy in in this this kind of social context of, of italy in in 2018 2019 i mean uh, to date they haven't been doing much i mean i think they are still um, 
much in a kind of phase of elaboration of trying to understand what they want to do with that. Um, obviously, this ministry uh, is has to be seen as the um, as the manifestation of this long-standing commitment of the Five Five Star Movement to the idea of a direct democracy, uh, the idea that citizens sh should directly intervene in decisions and policy making. Uh, bypassing representatives that are deemed to be uh, distortive of, of the democratic process. Right? And I think this kind of discourse needs, needs to be uh, understood in a kind of, in a from a critical perspective, in a sense that, that, that much of it is, is highly problematic and, uh, and has been betrayed, but it bespeaks the fact that indeed many people are distrustful of, of political representatives and they're distrustful for very good reasons. Right? Mm. Because they've seen their political representatives basically betraying uh, their mandate uh, for years and years uh, and be in cahoots with corporations, in cahoots with vested uh, uh, interests of all sorts. Uh, right. So there is, I think there is, there, is some, there, is, there is a kernel of truth in, the, in this promise that perhaps needs to be reclaimed. Uh, uh, and indeed, I think that there's some way in which um, re referendum and other forms of plebiscitary democracy can deliver more democratic participation and more democratic engagement. I mean, now saying this in Britain uh, after Brexit that has been highly criticized for being a sort of fake consultation may, may sound strange. Uh, but indeed, also the Brexit referendum, in a way, was perhaps more democratic than many other uh, forms of democracy that are widely accepted. It was a way in which people could air discontent, which one could really see what uh, a large um, share of the British public was thinking about, about the EU and, and, and European integration policies. Um, if I could just, if I could just jump in there, Paolo, yeah. um, could you? Is there any sense in which you think? Um, how does the Italian left, or even Senza Comune, if you could tell us a bit about their position on the Europe on um, the EU? Well, I mean, you've already told us, I suppose, about the position of the Italian left and its slavish adulation of the European Union. But how far you think the Italian population at large, the electorate at large, is still wedded to the EU? And yeah. how does Senso Comunio approach the European Union? I mean, would you support um, Quit Italy? I think that's the name of the equivalent for Brexit for Italy. It's Quit Italy, isn't it? Yeah, Quit Italy. Yeah. Quit Italy, yeah, that's it. Quit snappier that way. <laughs> I think there is, uh, uh, in Italy, there is all this debate on sovereignismo. I don't know if you have heard this term. It's, it's a term that is quite current in, in France, where they uh, speak of uh, sovereignism. Uh, basically, the idea is that is is in a way the equivalent of populism, right? Uh, in a way, journalists get, getting tired of saying populism all the time. Now they're they, they, they change into sovereignism, right? So namely, the, the idea is that there is a new divide, not just left and right, but sovereignist is defenders of national sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis, uh, anti-sovereignist or Euro Europeanists, right? which indeed really cuts across the, the left and, and right divide in, in interesting ways. So according to this definition, for example, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and his Eurocriticism would be uh, considered sovereignista, sovereignist, right? While Macron would be the perfect example instead of anti-sovereignist. I mean, and and we at Senso Comune uh, think that th that kind of divide is, is, 
is important because indeed sovereignty is is perhaps the master signifier of contemporary politics has become the key issue in, in contemporary political contentions yet uh, it, it can be problematic as a as a identity position right in a sense that ultimately sovereignty is a means to an end not the end in and of itself right in the sense that uh, we i am so i'm a socialist we are socialist so we think that uh, we should reclaim part of national sovereignty at least because the non-sovereignty of the european sovereignty we have these days is a huge obstacle to socialist policies right and and do you think the and specifically on the electorate do you think the view of the italian voter is changing at all with respect to the european union yeah the, the interesting thing connecting with that is that i mean for us basically uh, we are we think that the main problem is the euro and the european union is also a problem and it should be uh, in a way uh, radically reformed if not completely sidestepped by whatever a new treaty new integrate a new form of integration perhaps a confederation rather than a federation, a more loose uh, kind of uh, cooperation agreement. Uh, yet, I think that the Italian electorate, in a way, is <laughs> uh, it, it thinks the contrary, in the sense that, that there was a recent poll according to which if people were asked to, 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 to vote today on the European Union, 56% would vote to leave the European Union. Yet, Pretty much the contrary would happen if they were asked uh, about the euro. Hmm. 56% would vote to stay in the euro, right? While That's, uh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so people are very, very skeptical of the EU. And they've, they've, they were not like that all the time. If you go back 10 years ago, say before the crisis, Italy was one of the most europhile countries in the entire EU. Mm, approval rates for the EU were up to, according to Eurobarometer, whatever, 70% plus, 80%. And these days is one of the most Eurosceptical's, uh, Euroskeptical countries. And for very good reasons, because since we entered this process of integration, uh, Italy has been, uh, has become poorer and poorer and poorer. Um, and to a great extent, we think it has to do precisely with, with what this process of integration has meant uh, for Italy. Right. This mm-hmm. man basically giving a lot of our industries and a lot of our economic activities all over to Germany and losing uh, competi- uh, competitive power vis-a-vis other industries and, and not having any means to actually rebalance the economy uh, because of the loss of monetary sovereignty. How would you how would you explain the con just quickly um, before we move on to the next section? But how would you explain then the contradiction between support for the euro and hostility to the European Union? The fact is that, I mean, the, the euro is really a trap, is a mouse trap in the sense that if you think about uh, all the savings of Italian people, right? I mean, in Italy, there was a very large middle class. This day, we have a large, highly eroded middle class, a sort of lumpen bourgeoisie, lumpen petit bourgeoisie, right? Uh, that is what uh, all these middle class families have become. As their savings, they were. Italy was one of the most saving-prone countries in the world, together with Japan, right? But these savings have been eroding and eroding through time. So people who still have savings in euros, obviously, they're wary that if we leave the euro, their savings are going to, at least in the short term, they're going to lose value, right? 
So you're in a situation where it's a sort of lose-lose in a sense that people know that they are stuck with a system they don't like, yet they perhaps don't want to make the hard uh, choice, take the hard step uh, required to rebalance the situation. So, Paolo, this all this context of democratic deficit, of the sense of distance between politics and citizens, as well as these sort of contradictory attitudes trying to resolve it. You know, you cite the contradiction uh, of attitudes to the EU versus the euro in Italy, and there's many others. This is all very important context, I think, for coming on to discuss the main subject that we're here to discuss today, which is the question of digital parties, which is, you argue, a sort of new organizational form for political parties. Uh, you set this in a, histor- a historical trajectory from the mass party of the 19th and 20th century through to the television party of the late 20th century to the digital party of today. Um, this sort of um, digital party reflects an organizational model that private companies have adopted, um, moving towards more lightweight and outsourced models, and then even to a platform-based model, which you which you discuss. So I think Phil wanted to ask more specifically about what this organizational form uh, entails. Yes, I think there is an interesting uh, parallel in history between economic organizational forms and political organizational forms. Uh, in the sense that if we look at the industrial period, uh, the socialist and communist parties uh, mirrored the, the forms of organization in the economy used by capitalist firms uh, in, in many different respects. In a way, they absorbed the tailorism, the efficiency-driven management forms uh, developed by capitalist firms and, and geared them towards uh, ends of uh, socialist policies towards ends of popular organization and, and emancipation. I mean, obviously, at, at any historical time, political organizations need to adopt the best te- technologies and the best forms of management for the very simple reason that if they don't do that, they don't stand a chance to fight against uh, economic power, right? which is ultimately uh, one of the main missions of political parties. But your argument so, your argument is that they do something more than just use technologies, for example, in their external communications, right? That there's an internal restructuring of the party. Yes, I mean, the digital party can be seen as a new instance of these uh, technological and organizational transformation that we have seen in, in previous historical eras. Uh, in a sense that now, um, for a long time, it, it looked as if political parties were the most... Uh, uh, reluctant actors uh, to change, to technological change. That is, while the economy has been changing dramatically in recent years, while the forms of consumption, the forms of labor have been changing dramatically, as a consequence of digital technology, often when we looked at parties, it, look at, it looked as if parties were still pretty much the same as they were in the 20th century, right? If not the 19th century. Uh, but there is this new generation of parties, um, the Five Star Movement in Italy, Podemos in Spain, uh, France Insoumise in France, uh, organizations such as Momentum that uh, have instead made a very significant innovation in the way in which they are organized, which to a great extent mirrors the model of the, the Silicon Valley economy, right, mm. uh, of the digital economy. These organizations are adopting uh, lean management techniques. Uh, they are uh, creating discussion platforms which look very much like social media platforms where people can create an account and can participate in discussions and deliberations 
There are instant polls that look in a way like, like reactions on social media where people are voting uh, by liking things, by upvoting or downvoting. That is, these parties are integrating in the political sphere a number of practices that have become already current in, in our society and in our economic system. Uh, in so doing, they are updating the party form uh, to the digital era. So what can you tell us just briefly a little bit for listeners who aren't familiar with it, what the sort of platforms are that these platform parties or to use your term digital parties use? What is a means of engaging their members, which is meant to be distinct from past modes of political organization? For example, in the case of the Five Star Movement, they have a platform called Rousseau after Jean-Jacques Rousseau, mm. the Genevian uh, political philosopher. Uh, where you can create an account, uh, it goes through a process of verification and so on and so forth. And there's a number of options. You can, for example, you can propose a law to be discussed, to be tabled in the regional assembly or in the national assembly or, or in the European parliament. Uh, people can comment on that uh, or you can comment on proposals uh, tabled uh, in different assemblies or you can vote on in participating in different referenda, online referenda on a number of issues. One of the most famous uh, occasions in the Five Star Movement has been, has been referenda to expel members accused of having breached party guidelines, a sort of guillotine referendum, a kind of Jesus or, or Baraba referendum. Do you want to expel this guy? I mean, almost invariably, and not almost invariably, invariably these referenda have ended with uh, an approval for the expulsion. Right? That's something that you actually point out in the book that a lot of these internal referenda end up with really kind of landslide victories for, for the proposition. Yes. Uh, in the case of the Five Star Movement, there's been around, there've been around 40 consultations. And only in two instances, there have been rank and file rebellions, uh, successful rank and file rebellions. Uh, one case was uh, a consultation regarding the illegal mig migration crime that was discussed, whose uh, elimination was discussed in Parliament. Casaleggio and Grillo, they uh, adopted a very uh, kind of realist, in quote, uh, anti-migration line. But in fact, the base was more, uh, say, to the left, civil rights than they were. So it ultimately or overwhelmingly voted in favor of the elimination of these of these uh, uh, crime. Um, uh, similar in the case of Podemos, we've seen, we've seen similar uh, phenomena. For example, there's been, a, there's been a famous referendum recently after the Galapagar case, you know, I think mm, the, the listeners perhaps have, have heard about this case. That is uh, last May or June, uh, Pablo Iglesias and his partner and uh, political and sentimental partner, Irene Montero, uh, were heavily criticized on the media because they purchased a house, uh, a quite posh house in Galapagar, in the mm, outskirts of Madrid. And the thing was criticized because it seemed to go against their uh, promise, right, of a politics of common people, ordinary people, different from the kind of uh, posh politics of the past. So in order to, uh, re to reinforce their position and to uh, silence criticism, they had this sort of uh, recall referendum on, the, on themselves. They called, <laughs> they themselves called the rec recall referendum. And 68% of the people voted for them to stay. 
but it was quite a low share of votes compared to many other referenda. I mean, as I say in the book, most of these referenda end up with 80 plus percent shares, uh, majorities in favor of the leadership. So the so fact that 32% of people voted against them was already quite a significant uh, sign of discontent of the base uh, yeah. uh, towards their leadership. Interesting. So this 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 raises one of the one of the perhaps key questions in in this area, which I think is, what's the effect? Do you think of these digital parties on party members and this question of who I guess who has power within the party? You talk about, or often, people often talk about this idea of disintermediation. So you talk you in in the book talk about decentralization of access goes with greater centralization of control. Could you mm. unpack this a little bit? What what what's really going on here? Do do these parties decentralize, or do they and give power back to the people, or do they centralize power? Yes, I think it's when we try to to explain this new model, it's always useful to compare it with uh, previous models, and in particular with the model of the mass party, which ultimately is the template of most socialist and communist party we are familiar with which was pretty much a multi-tier uh, representation system, right? Where we would have uh, a local structure called a cell or a section, then organize a regional level, and then moving up and up uh, with a delegated democracy, sometimes a multi-level delegate democracy, where uh, people would elect other people and elected people would in turn elect other people, right? In this case, instead the promise, at least on paper, is to completely disintermediate this. Namely, the idea that people can elect directly the secretary, the treasurer, the committee of guarantee. They can directly participate in policy discussion. All things that before were not available to the membership, right? I mean, in a sense that before you would elect a delegate, which would sit in the National Assembly mm -hmm. uh, or in the party conference. And in the party conference, this person would then go on to elect uh, the, 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 the top offices of the party, right? So the interesting thing here is that people have grown suspicious of these levels of, of intermediation, and perhaps they are right to do so, uh, because uh, with the change in, in social conditions, with also the um, uh, lower political participation of people, often these intermediate levels of the party, these cadres of the party, have become, in a way, uh, not responsive to the base anymore, right? Mm. They have become autonomous and, and self-serving, right? Um, so what happens there is, is a sort of plebiscitary uh, transformation of the party, which is quite paradoxical in a sense that on the one hand, you can say that the base is more empowered. That is why in the book I talk about a super base in the sense that it is assigned a number of choices, a number of decisions that before it didn't have that before were assigned instead to elected officials who in turn decided, in a way were sort of super delegates, right, uh, decided for people. While now ordinary members are at least on paper given these decisions. Uh, yet this goes hand in hand with, with the strengthening of the center, right? This is something that libertarians who often talk about leaderlessness or digital mm. technology as leading to a sort of uh, digital anarchism often uh, overlook, namely the fact that often giving more power to rank and file members uh, goes hand in hand with more power to the very center of the party, to the leadership, which is why in the book I talk 
of the hyper leader. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love how you uh, explain out this contradiction because it was something that I hadn't really occurred to me exactly what troubled me a little bit about these digital parties. And what's interesting is that through the through the means of the platform, it seems to give power to the people. And yet, you write the platform mm-hmm. is never neutral. This is something that everybody who uses Facebook knows that you know everybody complains about the Facebook algorithm, right? There's someone still controlling how the platform works, and I guess that's analogous to what's happening in digital parties. Is that right? Completely, completely. In the sense that, on the one hand, you have this sort of libertarian promise, uh, the idea that you do away with all the hierarchies, all forms of mediation, all forms of control, all the bureaucracy, right? All these uh, relics of the past, or at least what they are perceived to be the relics of the past, and you are in this situation in which people can uh, directly make decisions, yet this is quite obviously a lie. Uh, an illusion in the sense that ultimately uh, there is still a form of mediation which is uh, not personalized, which doesn't go through an apparatus or uh, through apparatchiks, right? But it goes through the algorithm uh, and through the platform. And as any coder knows, uh, the code always involves arbitrary decisions about. Uh, the choices that people can make uh, about the way in which data is aggregated, uh, the way in which uh, questions are formulated. For example, this, this is something that already Robert Michels, the theorist of the party, of the mass party, uh, back at, at, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, discussed the fact that you can manipulate people's decisions simply by uh, the way in which you order questions, right? For example, if you have a multi-option uh, consultation, uh, the, the mere fact that you uh, position a question in, in the first uh, place and another one in the second place makes the first uh, option more likely to be chosen by people, right? Which is always the critique of uh, plebiscitarianism, right? Yes. Yes. This is Ben. Um, let's let's Hi, just ben. like uh, go. Hi. And let's just go back to um, this question in terms of digital parties. In terms of what we have, in terms of concrete examples, movements of digital parties, what exactly is the social base of these parties? Is there a distinct social base? I think in your in the book, you talk about two factors connecting this specific base and often involving quite young people. One is uh, hyper-connected in the sense of people who have uh, a lot of access to internet and uh, yeah. spend a lot of time on social media. And second of all, the sort of exploited or hyper exploited nature of these people in the sense they sort of millennials, young, having a, a uh, lack of opportunities, being some of the sort of uh, worst victims of the economic crisis and kind of the political and economic stasis that's taken hold in many countries. Yes. Yes, I, I talk about, mm, I use this notion of connected outsiders, right? Which highlight the paradox many people live in these days, right? The fact that they, on the one hand, they have these uh, high level of connectivity, high access to kind of cultural goods, to knowledge, to education. But at, at the same time, uh, young people tend to be uh, some of the most underprivileged uh, in, in present economic conditions. They often suffer more difficult economic conditions than their parents, than older people. And you see that across many of these parties. Uh, I mean, uh, Podemos vote was, was very young, uh, was very high. 
in, in internet connectivity. Uh, to some extent, also is the case with, with the five star movement. Also, less digital, more traditional parties that have gone through renewal, such as labor, uh, display similar tendencies in terms of their socio demographics of support. Uh, Francis Sumis vote has also been very young. Um, then, I mean, you have to say that the their base of support is quite diversified, right? In the sense that these uh, um, connected outsiders are uh, the, the bulk of support. But then you also have, for example, unemployed people. Uh, you also have people with um, who are older in age. I mean, to some extent, this always has always happened with political parties. Even back in the days in the industrial era, for example, the Communist Party in France or in Italy. Yeah. They also, um, for example. Yeah. Mr. Coming here, it's like a point. Well, I think is actually one of the, something which has also been quite interesting is over here in Brazil, where we've had the uh, mm. rise of Bolsonaro, who's also had quite a big support base among uh, young people, actually. And one of the th things is that the hyper-connected youth, and at least a ele significant element of them, ended up voting for him. So I think like it's just worth mm -hmm. pointing out that hyper-connectivity and the sort of access to these uh, spaces doesn't necessarily translate to any progressive politics. Yes, completely, completely. I'd say that, uh, I mean, in, in the case of these movements, it connects to progressive polit politics because these people are also, these hyper-connected people are also hyper-exploited, right? So most of the electorate of these parties uh, stands at, at, at a cross point between these two uh, categories, right? Uh, so they are more concerned about social spending, about public services, about unemployment, and, and all these things. Um, um, then obviously there is not at all, uh, I would just say, a correlation necessarily between hyperconnectivity and progressive politics, right? I think it is quite clear. But perhaps there is a strong predict um, predictive uh, element in youth vote, right, uh, across many parties that we are seeing in, in, in the recent years for a very simple reason, not because people were more or are younger tend to vote more for the left. Because contemporary youth is more fucked, is more screwed <laughs> than, than older people, right? Yeah. Um, I just want to like make one point. This, in terms of this, do you think, uh, in terms of this sort of hyperconnectivity as a social base, is and this sort of exploited demographic, do you think there's a possibility for a sort of more long-term sort of organization of these people through this platform party, or is it always going to remain sort of loose, uh, a loose affiliation? I mean, one of the interesting things that perhaps also refers to, to the previous question is is that in terms of membership, the main novelty of these parties is that they make it very easy for people to become members. So before, in order to become a member of the party, you had to meet a number of conditions. In a radical ultra-left party, you also perhaps have to go through an interview process. But at least in most parties, you have to pay dues, right? Every year you have to pay whatever, 50, 60, 70, perhaps you even had to pay once every month or every two months, right? Uh, well, with these parties, mostly the sign-up process is free. And that's one key similarity with social media. Namely, you just need to, for example, in the case of the France uh, Insoumise, you just need to write your uh, email and your name and to push the button, I, I support, je soutiens. So this is very interesting because basically it 
radically lowers the barrier between sympathizer and, and, and full-on member. Uh, so this has, uh, I think, a very, very strong potential to pull in many people who have uh, for a long time been marginalized from, from politics, from the political process, mainly because they felt that, that you know, being a member of an organization was something very bureaucratic, very gray, very complex. While now, I mean, I think it is only a good thing that being a becoming a member becomes something easy. Uh, then the problem, though, is that there is a risk that many of these people become then dormant members. And you indeed see that in consultations where often the participation rate is around 20% of people, uh, which is quite disappointing. So th there is a, ra a risk of a sort of, of a passive democracy in which people uh, become members are at least mm, formally integrated, but then functionally they are not really integrated. Uh, they participate very little, and mostly they participate in more plebiscitary uh, consultations, where it is ultimately easier to participate. Right? Which is a sort of irony of the digital party, isn't it? That that it that it proposes that people will be more engaged, more active, more involved in politics, and at the same time, it maybe suggests a model which is quite passive, albeit it does bring in new masses into party organizations, which would have been completely uh, distant from it, uh, maybe even apathetic uh, beforehand. And I think I, I want to use this opportunity to maybe segue to a little bit of the deeper context, the deeper social political context, which gives rise to the digital party uh, and informs the digital party's critique of past modes of organization. Uh, George has already mentioned as we talked about the the notion of disintermediation the idea that the party cadres and the bureaucracy get removed from the party and you get the as you call it paolo the super base and then you get the leader and there there's a kind of gulf in between uh i guess if we want to tie this to a, a kind of more longer term critique amongst progressive movements which is uh the critique of bureaucracy is there a way of understanding mm -hmm. this as a sort of a critique of Stalinism gone too far, that reacting against the sort of Stalinist party of the 20th century, this very heavy, solid organization where uh, individual members had very little autonomy, you've gone all the way to the other side and got done away with any sort of stratifications, any structures, any hierarchy towards this supposedly horizontalist model. Um, doesn't that bear bring with it certain problems, as, as you've already hinted at, I guess, um, that there, that you lose out any form of representation within the party. Yes, I, I do agree with this. I, I think that when, when approaching the digital party from a normative perspective, we need to have a kind of nuanced approach where we uh, basically identify the good element of innovation. That is, there is, I think, there are a lot of good things in the, in, in the fact that people are involved directly in important consultations. For example, about party policy, about important dilemma decisions. For example, whether a party should enter government in a coalition or which position a party should take on, on an important decision. Uh, yet at the same time, there is a risk of uh, a, a lack of integration right, in, in, in the party uh, process uh, because people don't feel that they are structured in something more meaningful. And, and that is where also more traditional forms of participation, uh, participation in uh, local uh, activities, in face-to-face -face meetings, continues to be uh, very important. 
So I think that there is an element, a destructive element of, of this party model that I think uh, should be reclaimed from progressive movements. And I think that all parties will need to take heed of some of the lessons. Yet there is a lot to uh, left uh, to, uh, uh, to to be transformed and changed in this party model. Indeed, uh, uh, exaggerated crit criticism of bureaucracy, I think, is, is problematic because parties need bureaucracies mm. in order to operate efficiently. And democratically, which is a point that often gets lost, right? That that bureaucracy is seen as completely inimical to democracy. But uh, I think, as we want to come on to discuss the notion of participation, which is identified with ipso facto with democracy, that the digital party proposes, depends on a on a very individualistic sort of uh, form of of participation. The there's the notion of participation in a banal sense is kind of a, a, a sort of universal positive, right? It's the active citizen being engaged in politics. Who's against that, right? We're all in favor of that. But the digital party seems to propose something a little bit beyond that, that rather than uh, the party representing collective categories such as workers or women uh, or, you know, having modes of representation uh, or strata of representation through local branches and so on, all you have is just individuals atomized individuals representing themselves through the platform. So it's just the kind of Facebook model and you don't really end up with aggregated collectivities. So it's quite an individualistic proposition, isn't it? Yes, to a great extent it is. And, and the risk also is that you have an aristocracy of participation developing there in a sense that there tend to be few people who have actually the, the time to engage in participating in very in meaningful and in-depth discussions for example, discussions on policy, not every everyone has the time or the the, the, the knowledge, the expertise to engage in these discussions. Uh, therefore, there is a risk that you have new forms of inequality that are emerging uh, within uh, these parties as, as a consequence of that. Um, so this is this is problematic in a sense. Participation, if participation becomes an end in and of itself, uh, this is dangerous for democracy. In the sense that there is a sort of uh, trade-off between uh, participation and representation. You can end up having a very participatory system that, that however, is not representative of the feelings of, of party members. Um, just to come in here, I think this is a very, one of the more interesting po points uh, that you made in your book was about the role of leadership in this particular party form. I think it's quite clear right now in terms of what identify as the sort of television party or the previous model of a mass party structure, there was a sort of cater system to the party. There was a rank that could fill up leadership positions. Now, now what you're really seeing is uh, in the current age is the relial on the charismatic leader who's kind of at a distance from any sort of formal bureaucratic structure. This leader, in effect, often becomes kind of seen as a sort of removed from the party and becomes a, just a spokesperson to amplify the issues of the base or whatever is considered the sort of guiding sentiment of the time. So in many mm -hmm. respects, as the charismatic leadership uh, has taken this role, it's in effect a sign of the decay of the sort of mass political party as a category. And I think it's both a weakness and an interesting thing in the sense that uh, could there be a uh, sort of Bernie Sanders moment without Bernie Sanders on the progressive side? But on the other side, you have something like uh, Bolsonaro 
rising up mm-hmm. as a figure in which a leader which uh, comes to the fore as amplifying these voices too but the sort of unpredictability and rely on the sort of personalized style of leadership makes for some very dangerous political conjectures so i think in end what i'm quite interested in this and i would like to hear your thoughts on this is how um in our current age in some respects uh if we consider the mass political party as a achievement of modernity neoliberalism for all its claims to uh, have be a more modern and efficient style of governance has actually ended up undermining one of these structures and opening the way to what even might be pre-modern styles of leadership in terms of personal networks Mm -hmm. and this guy standing outside of any formal accountability measures. What do you think of this? Yes, I think that it bespeaks, this emerging party form bespeaks uh, a lot of the neoliberal spirit and its distrust of uh, uh, collective organizations. I mean, uh, unfortunately, we need to accept, though, uh, from a normative perspective, it's problematic for us, the fact that people these uh, days are very suspicious of collective organizations and they uh, lend more trust to charismatic figures uh, to for example to Jeremy Corbyn or to Bernie Sanders also because interestingly these figures have often been fighting themselves fighting with the, with their own parties we know that Jeremy Corbyn has gone through a very prolonged fight with the apparatus of the Labour Party that was still uh, very much dominated by uh, Blairite figures. And, and the same has happened with Bernie Sanders and, and, and the Democratic uh, Party in the US. Right? So there are very good reasons why these days uh, people are distrustful of, of uh, bureaucratic organizations and are more uh, trustful towards uh, charismatic leaders. Uh, the point is what this is leading to. I mean, uh, Gramsci said that in, when discussing the, uh, the, the modern prince, uh, the political party as the modern prince, uh, that in a way, personal leadership was something of the past, that we are we're now in a technological era where uh, the only feasible uh, mode of, of, of political power was collective organization, namely the political party. Yet, it interestingly, also said that there were some conditions in which personal leadership, the leadership of the condottiere, uh, may still play a role. And these were phases of emergency, phases of, of organic crisis, where you basically still need a kind of charismatic leader uh, whose role ultimately, in, in from a long-term perspective, is the one of refounding the collective organization. Uh, is a sort of transitional figure who uh, is there in order to set the foundation for a new organization to emerge. And I think from a positive perspective, this is the way in which we need to look at this charismatic leadership. Namely, there is a role, there is a function for these charismatic leaders, but it is a transitional function. I mean, these leaders uh, should be there to reestablish a viable form of collective organization that is not reducible to their own personality, uh, that can then basically uh, follow on their on, on, on what they have constructed. So would you... Um... Would you say, I guess, to kind of to, to 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 face it down a little bit, that we have this movement from Berlusconi, who's who's a uh, one of the key figures of of this podcast, being the classic TV, I guess, the classic <laughs> TV uh, politician, to Beppe Grillo, who's the classic kind of digital politician. Um, is this is this too too simple? 
No, co- completely. We, we see some similarities between, for example, Beppe Grillo and Berlusconi, right? I mean, uh, the fact that there is a, an element of the society of the spectacle in, in these leaders, and and indeed uh, Grillo is a figure that made the transition from being a TV celebrity to becoming an internet celebrity. And if you look at figures like such as Salvini and Bolsonaro, they, they very much have owe their leadership uh, to their ability to uh, play the game of the society of the spectacle, right? Being there, uh, always present for the public, uh, hugging babies, uh, making uh, uh, ludicrous uh, statements on uh, whatever topic. Uh, and the same goes also for progressive figures such as Melanchon and Sanders. And these people are successful because they are able to, 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 to be performative actors. Uh, and and I think we need to accept that that is necessary in, in present conditions, namely that the people are looking for that. That is the only way in these days that we can uh, uh, develop that sentimental connection between the people and the party, to use the famous expression of, of, of Antonio Gramsci. So thereby the charismatic leader becomes the necessary vehicle for this affective uh, uh, link between the electorate and, and, and the party. Uh, however, obviously, there are uh, some serious dangers to this process and to this phenomenon that need to be uh, considered and that need, to, in a way, to be overcome. But they need to be overcome uh, through a, <laughs> a Hegelian moment, right, where we uh, start dealing with the present situation and, and only later uh, we, we, we try to erect a new organizational structure on, on, on the on the ruins of, of the old system, as it were. A kind of a kind of Alf Haybung, if you exactly. Exactly. So you see, in, in the same answer, you have both Bunga Bunga and, and Alf Haybung. Perfect. That's what we wanted. <laughs> That's what we're leading up towards. Uh, this is pretty much the thesis. Um, so you've made the case that there's the possibility or the desirability that this new generation of charismatic figures, at least on the left, um, point towards a transition to, I suppose, a repoliticization and the reformation of more inclusive and uh, collaborative political structures. So is your overall assessment of this new type of politics, is it positive or negative? And what are the prospects for this model of politics at the end of the end of history? Yes, I mean, it is positive in uh, in the sense that these parties are, are facing up to the challenge of, of creating new structures in the digital era that can have the same level of efficiency than digital corporations have or a similar uh, level of efficiency. And I think as mm, if we want to be successful, we need to realize that legitimacy is one thing, efficiency is another thing. And the two, the two things need to have their, uh, their place, right? They need both to have, to have their, their importance. Uh, too often, uh, movements have a thought that it was enough for them to be uh, completely democratic, uh, sometimes, though this sometimes went at the expense of their efficacy. So in terms of efficacy, I think it, it is clearly demonstrated that these parties, because of this organizational model, uh, uh, model, they've been very efficient. They've managed to grow very fast to become uh, parties in government, as is the case with the Five Star and partly with Podemos, though it is supporting externally uh, the government of Sanchez in Spain. 
the question though uh, is how uh, they will evolve from this embryonic form and and overcome some of the most evident problems they have and the most evident problems are uh, have to do mainly with the fact that there is lots of betrayal of the promise they make a face value the problem uh, the promise of an extended democracy while for the most what they are actually delivering is a sort of uh, top-down democracy is a reactive democracy is a quantitative democracy where mostly people can only basically say like or love or unlike mm. to posts to messages that have already been um, packaged and manufactured by the top with very little room for for bottom-up intervention right so this calls for a very serious rethinking of this template but my contention is that we should work with this template right that we should not re reject it but we should accept it as the game in town and we should work with it excellent paolo uh, that's all to be found in the digital party political organization and online democracy it's out on pluto press now and i think it's a very important book because it does start to sketch out what is still something which is quite embryonic as, as paolo has just described uh, but which we will no doubt be seeing more popping up in various different countries around the world and perhaps intensifying there where they already exist paolo thank you very much that was fascinating thanks very much to you all All right, so this is just a little chat between the four of us to pick out some of the key themes that were discussed there. So firstly on leadership, Ben, you wanted to make a point on this. Well, I think we need to... Uh, I think the rise of the charismatic leader in this particular party form uh, bears some uh, more points than we had just elaborated uh, in our discussion there. I think for one, I think the decline of the mass political party uh, is a real tragedy. Uh, these things took uh, quite a while to get going, and even if they became moribund and pathetic, as in the case of the perhaps the first modern mass political party, the German Social Democratic Party, the loss of this form uh, leaves so many social wounds that are dangerous going forward. And I think this rise of charism charismatic leadership is particularly worth noting when we start speaking about the so-called uh, rise of the new right or populist right, whatever you want to call them. I think, for instance, as some have argued, this particular digital nature uh, with, say, Bolsonaro, for instance, and how he addresses his followers directly through Facebook Live and eschews traditional media. So in some senses, uh, the ways of traditional accountability and having to uh, deal with some of these sort of uh, institutions of liberal democracy that can mediate is being uh, hampered with the decline of the, ma a party, the mass party by figures who don't really respect this, who have the technologies to bypass it. And I think what well, is all... I'm not, I sure, I'm not sure... Sorry. I, I'm, just, I'm, 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 getting, I'm, just, I'm, I'm taking that's one sort of argument that you can make, but I think what's actually more interesting than that argument is when, basically, if you have a party infrastructure behind you, you have a uh, cadre, you have some sort of group that can fill the ranks if you take power of a government... When you don't, who fills the ranks? And what you're seeing is these really strange piecemeal coalitions of all and sundry of, for instance, in the case of Trump and Bolsonaro, these absolute weirdos and uh, in some cases, family networks. So you're seeing other forms of uh, sort of networks that are or connections that are not located within sort of liberal democratic institutional frameworks being used to desperately full, uh, full up governmental positions and govern because of a lack of any political capacity. And I think 
while we haven't seen so much what will happen if a left party takes power and if they lack the cater capacity what they will do about this this is the right-wing phenomenon and it leads to some uh, at the very least very bizarre political events i think it, i think the second point you make ben is more relevant maybe than the first i don't have too much of a problem with the direct communication from a party leader uh, to the masses or to its base because at the end of the day that is at least an improvement on the limitations of the hollowed out cartel party of the television age, where party leaders were incredibly dependent on access to the media gatekeepers to communicate to the people. So you saw this with a figure like Tony Blair getting close to Rupert Murdoch. If, if that means that if the new development of using social media to communicate with people is done more directly and doesn't depend on media gatekeepers, I don't think that's too much of a problem. The novel aspect anyway is not so much the use of external communications as we discussed at the beginning of the episode, but using digital technologies internally in the organization of the party. Oh, no, you know, for sure. I don't dis- disagree with you. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it is, is a major shift in terms of how uh, the sort of the basic functioning of democracy works in the sense of how it's supposed to work. And this is what we see. Uh, in part with things like with like knobs is people panicking because suddenly uh, the traditional gatekeepers are no longer relevant but it's a phony i think the point is it's a phony proximity because you can watch someone on facebook or follow their twitter doesn't mean that you're in any meaningful way closer to power or have greater control over the political process quite the opposite in fact it's precisely because you don't have control because you don't have these intermediary layers political structures, social structures that connect you to power, that the phony proximity, you get this sense of phony proximity by being able to directly connect with a leader, whether it's Bolsonaro or Trump through social media. I think the point um, also that Paolo made, though, is that these are this is a phenomenon that crosses parties, not just those on the right, but also is charismatic, these kind of charismatic digital leadership on the left. And also, I think it's important because the point is... Um, and this builds on what Ben was saying, that there's no way for society to effectively imprint its interests into the state. And that seems to me very dangerous, that if society, civil society, social movements, political movements have no way in which they can embed or capture the state, then it means effectively that there's no way for social interests to be expressed. And that's that's very dangerous. And I think it may also, um, you know, it reinforces tendencies such as Bolsonaro's appointment of such a large swathe of military figures, precisely because they're, like Ben said, there's no cadre, there's no um, membership of a political party by which you can funnel people from society into the state. Well, I mean, what you're what you're missing is is a notion of, I guess, representation. And I thought that was something that Paolo talked about really interestingly, that you, you move to participation or you move to this particularistic yeah. kind of like, re- reflection of of yourself rather than, representation. A, rather than a representation. Yeah, that's right. Which is, of course, I mean, the, uh, one question which we didn't get onto, which has literally just come to me and I sort of wish that I'd asked it, is what, what really explains the rise of these these parties is it their technological in- innovation is it the the changing kind of social structures of, of mainly western european societies or is it a response to an absence of participation or a, a moral panic around apathy or some idea of we just need to get people 
involved in in politics so the easiest way to do this is to um is to dismantle ideas of representation and replace them with um a more disintermediated um closer relationship neoliberalism has led to the hollowing out of political parties the reign of the market the displacement of politics or collective will or um, a sense of conscious social direction and purpose all of that has contributed to it and is expressed in all the various ways that you uh, suggested george the things that phil and ben have just critiqued are things that apply to the hollowed out cartel party of the late 20th century the sort of neoliberal politics the the fact that party that sort of newly created parties have to uh, bring in all sorts of weirdos into government or bring in military figures into government because there's no party cater, there's no established leadership, there's no organization, you know, established political structures. That's something which is not such new news. I think we the way to understand the digital party is something else. It's that it actually proposes to re-democratize things. It, it, it's filling in the party. It's filling in a hollowed out party. And at least I think we have to not treat it too cynically as just a maneuver for a new charismatic form of leadership with you know sheeple um, following it on Facebook. I think it does propose a more substantial form of engagement from party members. So I, I think Paolo, I, I Paolo would go along with Paolo. At all. Yeah. He was saying I mean, he was more ambivalent about it. He's saying he hopes, you know, his he thinks it's he hopes it's going to be a transitional form and that we'll go through this kind of era of new charismatic leaders. But I mean, he doesn't suggest that there's a new activism on the part of membership. Quite the opposite. What everything that he was saying was that it leads to greater withdrawal and apathy. All you can do is vote in these um, stunts which are engineered by the leadership, direct democracy, you can like things on social media and so on. But it's not a kind of sustained, engaged and structured process of participation. I mean, I think part of this is uh, in like, at least in the sort of left renewal sense, which is this has been a form of politics, is that normally when you have a sort of a left upsurge or a new left party or sort of left wave, it follows a it traditionally followed, say, for instance, a period of union militancy or social unrest, which produces a set of institutions and organizations which then seek to uh, secure their interests through uh, political power. And now what we've seen is, if you wanted to be very banal about it uh, in terms of the standard narrative, all these sort of uh, leaderless protests which have uh, failed to produce the sort of same sort of institutional representation through their, act- their uh, uh, militancy or protests as previously done. Now what you're seeing is that uh, this is some, in the absence of having a way of being involved, this is how people, this is how people can uh, simulate involvement or bring people in because people already just cannot see a sort of more hierarchical or more standard way of associational uh, forms as something which is uh, possible in the current age. I think for a lot of people our age, they have, we have ne- um, never been in any sort of movement or being proximate to a movement where you've had that experience of having to be accountable uh, and having to uh, operate in a hierarchy as a political militant where you get deployed. Right. I think it ends up reflecting, uh, you know, you get these protests like the movement of the squares in Spain, and then it takes a party form. But instead of actually forming a mass party, it ends up creating an organizational form which reflects exactly the, the problems of movementism which is that people get burnt out it it depends very much on your own individualized engagement without any structures to maintain continuity over time when that flourish of enthusiasm has later on evaporated yeah exactly so it, it so the digital party ends up 
very evanescent. I mean, uh, in that sense, uh, at its best, what it can do is seek to renew or uh, give rise to something which could perhaps get people more involved in a sustained basis. But I think the experience that most people have when they try to get involved in an organization, at least in uh, the United States or uh, the UK or countries of this of this type, is when you go to a meeting and like you feel strongly about an issue, it's like you have to volunteer your time and you have to come up with what people should be doing rather than like, hey, uh, you tell me what to do. And that's kind of like this sort of entrepreneurial model of activism, which is sort yeah. of so yeah. much part of like digital branding yeah. that like Absolutely. you have to you, cultivating identity through the cultivation of self rather than having something which is anonymous and not for public consumption, uh, but is building something bigger. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all the vicissitudes of the new digital economy brought into politics. And that's really bad because as we discussed in the entrepreneurs episode, uh, there's a hell of a lot of problems with that. In fact, there's some really creepy similarities with it, actually. The, the entrepreneurial model of the economy depends on these great leader, charismatic leader figures, which uh, carry society forward through their own genius. And the, the, the political form of that, the digital party, seems to reflect that almost uncannily. There's also like this idea on the left is that behind uh, ev- everybody who cares deeply about an issue, there's a potential mega activist there. All you have to do is just... F- uh, be the best self you can possibly be and suddenly that will make you a great activist which is kind of what people really think and a lot of it's just really talking about yourself as a way of militancy I was going to make a point about a podcast being like a political party, but I'm not going to do it. It was stupid. Political party. Do we all admit Alex is our great leader? Oh, yeah. He's the uh, he's the anti-charismatic leader of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so he's kind of like... Alex is trying, he is anti-charismatic. That's a good thing because he's trying to re-establish bureaucratic authority and procedure and institutions. <gasps> and so for Alex that, is just we should all it. respect him. So Alex is just a desperate barbarian. Alex is not a desperate barbarian. Alex is not yes. a digital demagogue. No, I think come come who, come into my even... iron cage. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. You have That's to... pretty good. Have... That's pretty good. That was great. <laughs> That's creepy. okay. All right, let's let's uh, let's let's finish. I'm just going to say something. <laughs> <laughs>